I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast of the session Memoir Running in the Family, featuring Vicky Laveau Harvey, Rick Morton, and Andrew Stafford in conversation with Caro Llewellyn, recorded live at the 2019 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. everybody good morning my name is Carol Llewellyn and I have just been on a bit of a magical mystery tour through <laughs> elements on a buggy and then not on a buggy but anyway we're here um, and it's lovely to see so many people here I also would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we gather here today and pay my respects to elders past present and emerging I'd also like to give thanks to the festival organizers and the volunteers and everybody who makes this gathering, which is an enormous amount of work, a whole year of work of people working very hard to bring these amazing writers together for this absolutely fantastic um, celebration of all things literary. And how amazing to see so many people here. It's just beautiful. Um, What I've asked the writers to do is to... Um, read for a little bit. I'm going to introduce them very quickly and then give you a short synopsis of their works because I'm sure that while you might have read one or some of the books, you probably won't have read all. So I just want to give people some background of a little bit of an overview so that you can then make sense of the conversation that we have as we have it. Um, So Vicky Laveau-Harvey is the author of the Stella Prize-winning memoir, The Erratics. Vicky is a former academic and translator who lived in France, and she believes in the power of the written word, the necessity of getting your tenses right and not using I after a preposition, which I fully support. (laughs) She lives in Gordon in Sydney, and we're going to be talking to her about this wonderful memoir um, of hers, which is the basis of the story is when her early mother is hospitalised unexpectedly Vicky travels from Sydney to meet her sister at their parents' isolated ranch home in Alberta, Canada. Both women have been disinherited and discover their mother has managed to shut herself and her husband away from the outside world and has been systematically starving him. Well, and just to make sure she gets the the job well and truly done, she's also torturing him with a disrupted sleep regime that has him being woken up every 30 minutes throughout the night. The once palatial house is covered, jammed with expired medicines, which her father is being administered, and a bomb shelter that contains any number of toxic substances that which eventually the sisters have to deal with. The erratics describe so many hair-raising situations that are ludicrous, heartbreaking, and frightening all at the same time, yet Vicky keeps a very steady hand in the telling. Andrew Stafford is a music journalist and critic, He was born in Melbourne's outer suburbs in the 1970s before moving to Brisbane. It's been 15 years since his debut book, Pig City, which was an acclaimed success detailing the history of Brisbane's music scene and the rise of punk in the 70s through to the breakthrough of acts such as Powderfinger and Savage Garden in the 1990s. Powderfinger and Savage Garden are two... (laughs) <laughs> things that you don't often hear in the same in the same sentence. Well, actually, the subtitle is The Saints to Savage Garden, which is even yes, more even unlikely. Like, yes, more unlikely. Um, something to, his book, Something to Believe in, is set to the soundtrack of music that has shaped a generation and uses music as a framework to discuss the author's battles with family illness, mental health, and destructive relationships. 
And it is certainly a book about music from someone who has interviewed everyone from Meatloaf to Midnight Oil and was a driver and roadie through Europe for a band he loved and almost killed him. <laughs> and almost I almost killed them. Yeah. <laughs> and it almost certainly that tour, I think, almost killed your marriage. Uh, it's a music-fueled narrative that is also a deeply moving story about family, about love, about devotion and saviour. And to Rick, Rick Martin grew up on a remote cattle station in the far west Queensland, in far west Queensland, a five-hour drive from the nearest largest town. Rick takes the phrase living in the middle of nowhere to all extremes. <laughs> Seriously. The kids do, did school through the radio, and at the age of seven, Rick walked into the kitchen to find his father kissing the 19-year-old governess. Bad enough under any circumstances, but this happens when Rick's mother, Deb, is in hospital nursing his infant sister and his older brother who had suffered a horrific burn injuries in an accident. So when his mother, Deb, returns home, she discovers her husband is leaving her, Deb and the kids are pushed out of their home, and a hundred years of dirt is almost an homage to Rick's mum, who we love. And we come to know Deb's heroic efforts to care for her kids in emergency housing commission accommodation and survive with no child support despite scant workplace skills. Rick and his siblings are thrown into hand-to-mouth existence. 100 Years of Dirt has been highly commended in Australia's richest literary prize at Victorian Premier's Literary Awards and was long-listed for a Walkley. Christos Chilkos has called Morton a crack storyteller and Tim Winton wrote him a handwritten note to say he was moved. So my synopses have really not done justice to these books, and I hope that you will go to the bookstores and buy them so that you can really understand how brilliant these books are. But I just wanted to give that little overview. Um, I've asked each of our guests to do a short reading so that you can hear their voices on the page, and that will also give you a little bit more, and then we'll dive into our conversations. So, Vicky, do you want to begin? Sure, sure. Is this okay? Can you hear me? Good. <laughs> no? Okay. How's that? Okay. I'll be loud. <laughs> this is the beginning of the book. My sister unhooks the chart from the foot of my mother's bed and reads. My mother is not in the bed. My sister takes her pen, which is always to hand, around her neck or poked into a pocket, and, with the air of entitlement of a medical professional, writes MMA in large letters at the bottom of the chart. MMA, mad as a meat axe. <laughs> My sister learned this expression from me yesterday. She has latched onto it like a child resting a toy from another. We have come to visit my mother in rehab for a broken hip in this prairie hospital, a place that could be far worse than it is. It is set down here, plain and brown, on flat farmland, but the foothills start rolling westward just outside town, and you see them from the windows. They roll on, smooth, rhythmic, and comforting, until they bump into the stern and inscrutable face of the Rockies, 80 miles that away. In summer, the fields are sensible right-angled squares of sulfur yellow and clean pale green, rapeseed and young wheat, in winter, the cold will kill you, nothing personal. Your lungs will freeze as Christmas lights tracing the outlines of white frame houses wink cheerfully through air so clear and hard it shatters. 
MMA, I say, they won't know what that means. You don't say that here in southern Alberta, even in urban centers. <laughs> it's a down-underism. It's an antipodianism. Maybe they'll see that on the chart and give her some medication called MMA and kill her. <laughs> Do we care, my sister says. <clears throat> she hangs the chart back on the foot of the bed as my mother wheels into the room, gaunt, her favorite look, with a black fringe and bobbed hair. Hats off for carrying that off at 94. Her sinewy hands coerce the wheels of her chair forward faster than you are supposed to go if you need this chair. She is wearing a hospital gown and a pair of fuchsia boxer shorts. Not hers, obviously not hers. She remarks that it is strange that she cannot have her own things to wear, that she must wear this strange outfit. We don't think to question. We believe in strange. We believe whatever. There's no other way to go at this. We have run the nurse's station gauntlet to get to her. We have announced ourselves at the counter as her daughters on our first visit to this rehab ward. We are her daughters, we say, when challenged about why we are in this corridor. No, you're not, the nurse says, not even looking up from her papers. But we are, we're sure. No, she insists she only had one daughter and she died a long time ago. Now she has none. My sister cries out from the heart, startling me. Look at me, she cries. Do I look dead? I don't think she's looking too good, but there is something more pressing. Why, I ask her, are you the daughter who gets to exist? even if you're dead now. Not to put too fine a point on it, but if anyone should get to be dead, it's me. I was born first. The physio strolling by stops to ask who we are and what the matter is. We stare at her, wanting to say all that is the matter, wanting to unroll the whole carpet of what is the matter and smooth it out, drawing attention to the motifs combing the fringed edges into some order, vacuuming the pattern's surface until clarity emerges. We wonder how to begin. They are saying, the nurse tells the physio, that they are the Duchess's daughters, but she has no children. Oh, you've got it wrong, the physio says. Little bird of a person, you'd never know it ever, but she had 18 kids. <laughs> Imagine 18 and only one boy. Heartbroken, she was told me herself. Oh, she had kids, all right. Nobody around when you need them, though. I draw breath. I can work with this. See, I say to the nurse, there you go. We can't speak for the others, but we'd like to see her. <laughs> um, Andrew, do you want to follow up. <laughs> Lucky you. How? <laughs> I've been having a furious internal debate about whether I should uh, read a section about family or read a section about the Ramones. I've decided to read about the Ramones because it's more fun <laughs> and because it speaks more closely to the theme of the book. Okay, my favourite quote about the Ramones comes from Richard Hell, the New York poet and provocateur, who along with Tom Verlaine formed the art punk group Television in around 1973. With the help of threadbare clothes strategically held together with safety pins, 
television were already busy changing the sound and look of rock and roll in a Bowery club called CBGB when the Ramones came along in their leather jackets and Beatles mop tops. The first song the Ramones wrote was called I Don't Want to Walk Around With You. The second was I Don't Want to Get Involved With You. <laughs> then came I Don't Want to Be Learned, I Don't Want to Be Tamed, soon followed by I Don't Want to Go Down to the Basement, Hell wrote in Hit Parader in 1976, just before the release of the band's self-titled debut. So Dee Dee Ramone says, we didn't write a positive song until now I want to sniff some glue. <laughs> so much for lyrical content. The music? It gives you the same sort of feeling you might derive from savagely kicking in your smoothly running TV set and then finding real thousand dollar bills inside, Hell went on. To this day, should a time machine be invented, I would set the controls for CBGB in 1974-75 to see the Ramones. Even if you'd already heard the Stooges, I can barely imagine the excitement of seeing them emerge from a flaccid 70s rock scene. It soon became apparent what the Ramones did want. Something to do, to believe in, to be well, to live, everything. They also graduated to Carbona, Not Glue, a song that had to be pulled from their second album, Leave Home, after the Carbona company decided that it didn't want to be associated with a song that extolled the virtues of huffing its solvent in desperation after Ma threw out the glue and paint and roach spray too. Most famous of all was I Want to Be Sedated, a song written after singer Joey suffered third-degree burns inhaling steam from a boiling kettle to clear his nasal passages ahead of a show in London. Johnny, the Ramones short-tempered guitarist who ran the band like Mussolini with politics to match, plays a 10-second guitar solo in which, he in which he hits the exact same note 65 times. <laughs> that was the essence of the Ramones, military discipline and economy, from the uniforms to the haircuts to the music in a flabby age. It was a revolution because, it seemed, anyone could do it. Lots of people did. The greater revelation after four decades is of how few did it well and that pretty much no one has come close to those perfect first four albums between 1976 and 1979. It's so easy to take them for granted in an age where every mall rat wears their t-shirts in the belief that Arturo Vega's iconic logo is a clothing brand. That won't ever stop me wearing mine. I can remember when wearing one was a signifier of difference, not conformity. These days, though, I derive comfort Sorry. These days, though, I derive comfort from the band's ubiquity and belated acceptance into the pantheon. That's because, for me, the Ramones mean constant reassurance. Their music always makes me feel better, no matter what. If I'm happy, I can put on the first album or leave home and feel ecstatic. If I'm down in the dumps, I can put on Road to Ruin and be soothed, sedated even, by its cracked anguish. Being a Ramones fan means never being alone. If all else fails, I can put on Rocket to Russia and crank Joey's greatest song, Sheena is a Punk Rocker. People talk about Desert Island albums. If I could take just one song, it would be Sheena. The sound of Johnny hammering those opening chords and that opening line about the kids being all hopped up and ready to go would be more than enough. I cannot think of another song that fills me with such pleasure. They never had any hits, but they never stopped trying, at least not Joey. It was a tragedy he didn't live to see the Ramones inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because, as Tommy Ramone said at the time, while it meant a lot to the band, it meant everything to the singer. Now they're all gone. After lymphoma took Joey in 2001, aged 49, Dee Dee succumbed to a heroin overdose a year later, aged 50. Johnny was next in 2004, aged 55, prostate cancer. 
and Tommy finally left home in 2014, aged 65, cancer of the bile duct. They were truly cursed. People talk about the Beatles and the Stones. For me, it's the Beatles, Stones, Ramones, and not necessarily in that order. <laughs> okay, Rick, over to you. G'day, everyone. <laughs> How are we? Um, mine's not as funny as those things. <laughs> but I have tried to start with a, a story of levity. And just for context, I didn't speak uh, properly at all um, for the first three years of my life. And mum was convinced I was special because of it. Um, the jury's out on whether she was right. <laughs> I couldn't speak properly, was almost certainly going to be gay, and one day showed mum I could read by completing all the answers in my school book <laughs> while her back was turned. In an, ordinary work, in, in an ordinary environment, such as a city family, these milestones would be seen as a credit to the parents and their tutelage of their son, probably called Rupert or Harrison, if we're being honest. Their son would be the result of their efforts, in the same way a pavlova is a product of oppressive forces like whisking. Every child born in the city is 1,500 mandatory violin lessons away from greatness. <laughs> Mum saw no such reason to claim responsibility, and when I was at an early age, she first explained to me my providence in earnest tones. You're not my son, she said. The aliens left you under the cabbage patch to observe humanity, and one day you'll have to go back and tell them what you saw. The news ought to have shocked me, but it did not. In the normal fashion, children who are told they are adopted, be it from Africa or interstellar supreme floating intelligences, <laughs> tend to have a bad reaction. Maybe they try to run away. Maybe they rebel and take up the flute. To me, however, it made sense. Of course these people were not my parents. They liked horse riding and checking the rain gauge. They did things that confused me. Dad played polo cross in Outback Events, a game that seemed to have been invented by someone who liked neither fun nor meaning, possibly an economist. <laughs> Our nearest neighbours were half an hour away by car, the nearest town an hour or more. We only had each other in that sense, but even so, my family never felt like they were mine. I watched them as if through glass at the zoo observing, wondering how they came to me, analysing what would happen if the glass fell in and they rushed from the enclosure. <laughs> Other days, I was the one enclosed, the boy in the bubble. Our mythology did not burn away with the years. During the dark times to come, Mum would ruffle my hair and whisper, you're certainly going to have a lot to tell the aliens. <laughs> Neither of us had read Nora Ephron, but this phrase became our variant of everything is copy. Even the worst experiences became fodder for my eventual report back. The stories continued into high school when mum would watch TV news reports of strange phenomena around the world. Unexplained lights in the sky, weird weather patterns, crop circles. That's the aliens looking for you. <laughs> she would say from her armchair without a hint of a joke. In our very small world, the many permutations of this phrase became our own cultural touchstone, the longest narrative arc in my existence, the piece of thread to which my mother and I clung. Proof that, despite it all, we had not been replaced by mutant beings. We were us, still. There were times when our reliance on the alien MacGuffin perplexed me, and I called Mum out on it. Sometimes you seem so serious... I feel like I actually am adopted, or you know something I don't, and you're using the aliens as a cover story. I prodded her on more than one occasion. 
these little interludes would end in hysterics, mum in tears, laughing, and me in pretend outrage. Just admit it, you stole me from an orphanage run by dogs. But not once has she broken the fourth wall and admitted it was just a story of domestic exceptionalism, a way to frame her belief that I was special. Every parent thinks they have a special child. Some of them actually do, though why would anyone believe them in the chorus? You know these parents. Mr. Eight was beating Russians in chess by the time he could walk. Miss Eleven was a founding member of the Saddle Club. Thomas invented double-entry bookkeeping for the Venetians. The difference for us was that mum couldn't bring herself to take the credit. I'll leave it there. Well, thank you for those readings. And I think it's just so wonderful to hear writers read their work. I think when you read them, you read them differently when you've heard the, heard the voices. I can see a few people nodding, and, um, and it, those readings were just great. These are very dark books, but you can see there is a lot of laughter and there's a lot of joy in them, and there's certainly a lot of hope. Um, Rick, I wanted to start with you because I think, so today's uh, title is Running in the Family, and I think perhaps you speak to that m most directly because I think you talk a lot about in the book about the, you know, the handing down of, of pain and suffering and poverty and, and trauma um, through generations and that you think that it's not just about, you know, we often think that this, these things happen, we are influenced by our parents, but I think, Rick, you say that it goes back a lot further than that and then you talk quite a bit about, about societies, about, how, about the trap of those, of those things for, for the people yeah, follow. I mean, I think, I mean, it's very easy to look back on my life and certainly the things that ended up happening to my brother and I and my sister and my mum and see it as nothing but a railroad and, and to look back at uh, the way my father was treated and the way we would be treated and say, well, we never had any other option but to fall to pieces completely. And I think there's, it has an explanatory power that we should listen to because there are, there are two kind of parts of the equation. There's what, what is done to us and what we do after the fact. And I think particularly with my father, my grandfather was a very cruel, violent human being who played games deliberately for his own enjoyment with the suffering of his seven children. And he ran a cattle station that was 6,600 square kilometres. Um, it functioned to him as um, a, a geographical prison. It was so big that none of his children could actually escape on foot. Um, and and they, they couldn't get out of his, his orbit. Um, and he used them like slaves. And my father, as a result of that, was an extremely broken human being who couldn't deal with his own emotions, who then, when faced with the drama of my brother's accident, uh, ruined his family in completely different ways. He wasn't his father, but he became somebody else who couldn't function. And I think we, you know, those things are true and we have to operate in that world, but it's also, I don't believe in fate. I don't believe that these things are the way we have to continue on, but... I guess I wrote the book because I wanted people to know that it takes an extremely lot of hard work to break the shackles of that, that history. Um, Vicky, your lovely son, uh, you meet, there's a lovely scene where you meet him in Hong Kong. Yes. And uh, you've just <coughs> been spending time with your crazy family. <laughs> yes. Um, and, uh, and he gives you a pass he says to you that, you know, that you're okay, that you have escaped and that you're not passing down and he feels that you've, you, you've yes. broken the shackles, you've broken that template. Yes, well, he actually said to me, I went to see him in Hong Kong on my way back from Canada 
to Sydney after my first visit, after my mother was hospitalized. And that was such a mind-blowing visit where there was my mother in the fuchsia boxer shorts, but there was a house full of the most amazing stuff and my father who was a skeleton and all these things to try. So when I'd stayed for a few weeks and then I was going home, I stopped in Hong Kong to see my son who was working there. And he said to me, it was New Year's Eve and he ran a, um, he ran a, a bar and dance club in Hong Kong. So it was really his busiest night of the year. He had no time, but he came out and he had half an hour to eat a pizza with me. And he said a very surprising thing to me. He said, Mom, I've just solved the nature-nurture debate. Now, my son is not someone who speaks that way. <laughs> he's, he's a very intelligent human being, but he... I was surprised to know that he'd solved this <laughs> thorny question. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, look, if nurture had anything to do with it, he said, you'd be a serial killer. <laughs> and then he looked at me and said very reassuringly, you're not. <laughs> and I said, okay. And he said, no, you're a good person. And that means you just arrived, you know, gold-plated that way because otherwise... There's no explanation for the person you are now. And I thought, I just love my son. <laughs> so he did. He kind of exonerated me. <laughs> do you think that leaving was, your, was what saved you? What do you think? Well, I did tend to flee rather long distances. <laughs> I've spent a third of my life on each of three different continents. And... Um, I think that had something to do with it. I think I realized quite young that I was dealing with a very monumental personality in my mother. And uh, someone wrote a while ago, having spoken to me, that this was a monstrous personality. And I don't like the word monstrous because I've never looked upon my mother as a monster. I look upon her as someone who was benighted. She had a terrible affliction. She had a personality disorder. And that's a terrible thing for the person who has it, as well as for the people who live around that person. So um, I felt that distance had virtue, yes. And I ran really fast, yeah. <laughs> um, Andrew, your savior comes from the unlikely combination of wild music and wild birds yes. and bird watching. Um, <laughs> Can you talk about those two? I, I guess I don't know if you would call them obsessions, but you did oh, mention no, that absolutely obsessions. You did mention that whichever Ramon did sixty-five strums of the same note. Did you count them? I did. I yes. thought so. I didn't think that that came from anywhere else. I thought that that may have been you counting them. So good. So can you talk about can you talk about bird watching and music as a way out of that? You used those things to help you through dark times. Um, yeah, there was an article in Audubon magazine about the link between not just music but punk and bird watching um, <laughs> in March. And since you've brought this question up, every, I'm going to have to really brush up on this article because every single person so far has asked <laughs> me about it. This un supposedly unlikely link between punk and bird watching. Well, that article was in March this year. Um, I met 
I met Sean Dooley, who's the author of The Big Twitch and the editor of BirdLife Australia's magazine when I was 12. He was about 15. A couple of uh, his slightly older mates who were of university age and had their driver's licences, which was very impressive to 12-year-old me. Um, those guys were genuine punks. This was 1982, and they'd just been to see the Dead Kennedys on their first Australian tour. And they're also big fans of Midnight Oil. Um, which is a whole other can of worms. But sticking with the Dead Kennedys for a moment, uh, one of them had got up and rolled around the stage with Jello Biafra in a Melbourne venue somewhere, and Jello had taken off this big coat which read Men Against Work. <laughs> Apologies to Colin Hay, but Jello said, one of the things we'll never forgive you Australians for is for sending us men at work. Um, Kevin Bartram will be known to uh, Melbourne listeners of 3PBS as Kev Lobotomy. He's done the show Shock Treatment for decades. So anyway, uh, this back to this Audubon article, March 2019. <laughs> lots of people were pointing out to me, and it's like I know <laughs> it's it's a thing. And like I, I was, I had to. I did an interview with Paul Kelly uh, recently, and and he's doing this production, Thirteen Ways to Look at Birds. And he says, "Oh, do you know about Sean Dooley? I used to kick the footy around with him in St Kilda with a bunch of other guys, including Tim Rogers." And um, and I said, mate, I've known Sean since you were in the Dots, which was his <laughs> band in the early 80s before he became a, a bigger thing. But uh, just to very briefly touch on the theme before we move on, um, look, my immediate family was far less traumatised, which is a nicer way of saying nowhere near as crazy as yours, Vicky, <laughs> oh, or thank yours, you. <laughs> And so I'm not quite sure how I, I sort of came out so weird by comparison. There, there are some... <laughs> There are some touchstones which we might reference later, but uh, but the point is that yes, both both music on one hand and the the natural world were portals of escape from my very busy and troubled little mind. <laughs> May I just ask? I mean, one of those pursuits is very silent yes. and meditative. Yes, and the other one kind of isn't. Yes. So <laughs> how do they? Mesh. What a wonderful question. Um, you, yeah. You're absolutely right. Um, when I when I go birding, which is the more active verb for bird watching, <laughs> um, it is a very meditative activity uh, and a source of solace and calm. Uh, going to see a rock and roll show, and I'm you know, rock and roll is kind of where I hide, to quote a, a Dave Graney song. Uh, to me, it's a very physical kind of release. And I've actually never been much of a drinker and I've never been particularly a drug taker either. Um, so... So it's like two panels of the same... Two sides of the same yeah. coin, exactly, mm. yeah. Mm. It was basically... That was my way of letting rip. Um, mm. I never had a problem at all with dancing like nobody was watching. <laughs> I think like, the phrase that I use in the book is that I just kind of plug myself into the amps and go. Yeah. <laughs> Andrew, what happens if you see a bird at a rock concert? <laughs> <laughs> Which one takes precedence? <laughs> Rick, you've stumped me with this one. <laughs> I, I don't think this has ever happened. <laughs> I don't think it's ever happened to anybody. <laughs> 
I said that I, the best thing this could be is if this was like a like a dinner conversation and we're off to a good start here. So, But I will just give you a quick prompt about... I want to ask each of you about... I think what I loved about each of your books was the authentic, unpretentious voice. Um, and I think that as a memoirist and as a writer in general, that's a very hard voice to get, but I think probably even more so with memoir, when you're talking about something so deeply personal, I think it's a bit it's probably quite easy to become quite grand in your language, but you've you've kept it, all of you have contained this pain and the rage and the other feelings that you have with a very authentic and true voice. And I just want to talk, ask you about how hard that was or how easy that was um, for you to come to. Well, maybe, I'll, if, maybe if I can launch in on that one, in, in my case, it actually happened extremely easily and almost by accident. Yeah. Um, the book was written in two months, essentially. So it just kind of poured out like it was being channeled, really, which is the experience that I would imagine that most writers dream of having. And I'd certainly never had such a sustained creative burst like that where I was in the zone for... Two months is obviously a very fast time to write a decent mm. manuscript, um, but a long time to have a sustained creative burst like that where I was sitting down at night usually and just smashing out 1,500, 2,000 words very fast. Mm. And from that point of view, I'd just say that it had to be written and it came out the way it came out. Um, and I think, you know, you naturally... or well, I naturally lean towards a bit of self-deprecation probably partly because who the hell wants to read a rock journo story anyway? I'm not a musician. I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, I didn't, and I didn't hang out with really famous people, but I thought the people that I met on the margins might have had... To me, they had more interesting stories to tell anyway. Um, and uh, in terms of, yes, some of the content is very raw, but I was also very raw at the time. Oh. I was kind of... I was in a stage of my life where I was quite reclusive. So doing this now is actually, you know, it is a challenge. Mm -hmm. um, but I have come out of that period and, and uh, yeah, it was a, it was a time of uh, intense grief. I was losing my mother at the time over in a very protracted manner. I'm sure we'll come to that. Um, yes, I had come through a separation. So um, it just kind of came out, really. It just <laughs> kind of had to be... It just had to be written. And Vicky, you said that you put you you wrote the book and then you put it aside for a couple of years. That yeah, I put it in a drawer. In a drawer. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Well, I'm not very good at putting things anywhere except in drawers. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> I sort of run out of puff at that point. I love the writing process. I love to do the writing. Um, I love to think about writing. I love to bore people silly talking about writing. And um, But when it comes to actually thinking, oh, that might go there, I don't know how to do that very well. But when I was writing this, I, I was someone asked me at a thing a while ago, said to me, why didn't you portray yourself in a more sympathetic, and why didn't you sort of, I mean, the gist of it was, why didn't you improve yourself on the page? <laughs> and I said, because that's not what you do when you write memoir. I said, your brief is, you tell it the way it was to the very best of your ability. And I'm very conscious that the way it was for me is not the way it was for my sister. 
we have two different truths, even though we agree on the actual events. We don't agree on how to interpret them or what they meant in the grander scheme of things. She is a believer and I'm not. And that actually skews the way you look at different things in a very major way. So I replied to this person, well, why would I do that? This is not a novel. And this is a memoir. And to the best of my ability, I don't think any of us came out very well. But it was how it happened, you know? So that's what you do. Mm. Rick? Uh, yeah. uh, the writing, I, I, people ask me how fast I wrote the book. And the writing took about two and a half months, the same as Andrew. But I, it couldn't have been done. Uh, all the work was done in 10 years. Um, and all the work that had to be done to get the book out was done on myself. Um, my 20s were a complete mess. Um, I was a chaotic person. I couldn't uh, commit myself to projects for very long. I had multiple mental breakdowns from the age of 25, um, which was very fun for all involved. Um, and I couldn't have written the book before a moment before I actually did because I would have written it in anger and self-pity um, because for five years I really hated myself and I hated the life that I had ended up with and I thought that I deserved better. Um, and all the rest of it. And that no one wants to read that. No one believes it for a start. If you write in anger, every word you put on the page, you cannot trust. And the readers see right through it. Um, and I certainly couldn't write a book that made my father the villain, even though it would have been easy to do based on the facts. Um, because I thought that would have been untrue, um, just as a basic human psychology. My father's not a bad man, I don't think, but he did a lot of bad things. And so I think in terms of that process... It took a lot of work to get to that point, and it had to be done that way. Um, but I like Vicky's point about, you know, some people who have read my book have reviewed it in one way or another and said that I wasn't a very sympathetic character <laughs> in my own book. Uh, and I'm like, well, that's not the point. Um, the point to me was to write a love letter to my mum. Mm. Um, and it wasn't meant to be a poverty, um, misery experience. And the only reason I put the hard stuff in there was to make people understand precisely how great a person she was for what she, she got us through. And so I couldn't give a rat's about me. Um, and the only other thing I felt more concerned about was whether my portrayal of my brother would be read in the right way in that I loved him and forgave him for all of his own mistakes. And I wanted that to come through. And I think I got there. It did. It did. <laughs> so I, I want to ask a question about... And this is going to sound a little bit strange, but when you, I think I'm wondering whether your experience of writing a memoir, did you actually really make the connection between sitting in that room and writing those stories, some of which are not very flattering to yourselves or to people that you love and care about? Did you ever really fully understand that people would come up to you and ask you questions about that and have read it and know things about your life that? even some of your best friends didn't know before. I got a Facebook message from the person who took my virginity from me yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> what did that person say? Give it back. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually very sweet and kind. And, and she said that our memories were about the same. So that was, that, so, so that was nice. But I couldn't resist sharing that. Since you've asked... <laughs> Anyone else? What was that? <laughs> Add to that. Is there any way to go from there? What was the question? Yeah. <laughs> no, I do have something to say about that, actually. Um, I never, I mean, I am in 
a perpetual state of disbelief that anyone who doesn't know me has bought the book. Um, I understood that my friends would. I mean, I, I guess maybe people write in different ways. I never wrote thinking anything I wrote would see the light of day. And now it has. And it's both immensely gratifying to have people say, I was touched by this thing you wrote part of it. Or I also quite like the negative ones. There was a post on the Stella site after I got the prize was a gentleman who tweeted, I believe. He said, I don't understand why this book got the Stella prize. It's annoying. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, I can live with that. That's actually kind of good, you know. Yeah. So I am amazed, but I'm very touched. Do you think do you think that you would have written it differently had you thought about it that that it would it wouldn't just sort of have sat in your <clears throat> drawer? And no, no. Because somebody said to me or asked me the question, said since you've been a translator and an editor as well as an academic, when you're writing, are you correcting all the time? Are you actually um, editing yourself as you go? And I said no. I send the editor on protracted holidays to Outer Mongolia. And <laughs> when I write, it's because that's exactly what I have to write. And then I edit myself, and I do things to it. But um, no, that's not something that preoccupies me, quite frankly. Rick? I, I've got a problem in that I keep forgetting that the things I write will become public. <laughs> um, and, you know, for the longest time in my 20s, I had given up on expressing outwardly uh, love. So I stopped telling my friends I loved them. I didn't like getting hugged. Um, I couldn't tell my mum I loved her, even though I really, really did. And I remember once I wrote a column in my local hometown newspaper, Circulation 3000, um, <laughs> for Mother's Day, just kind of doing a condensed version of this book, really. And she was so overwhelmed and she was crying and she wanted to talk to me about it in person. I'm like, nope, nope, can't do it. Um, <laughs> put it on the page, um, wanted you to read it, but then forgot that we would have to have these kind of reactions in, mm. in person. And I guess that's kind of what this book has been like for me as well. And I'm glad I, I'm like that because, you know, I, I bared my soul um, completely in it and I don't have a problem with that. In fact, I'm on a mission. Uh, my year of living vulner vulnerably has now <laughs> um, marched into its second year. Um, so my year of living mathematically has failed. <laughs> um, but vulnerability is really important and I love that. And there hasn't been a bad outcome. I mean, yes... Talking about the hard stuff can be uh, more um, d fatiguing than I thought. Every mm. time I do a writer's festival, I kind of fall in a heap after three days. Um, but while I'm doing it, it's fun, and I'm on, and I'm and I'm honest, and I think that's really important. Yeah. If I can just answer the question more seriously, uh, virginity <laughs> stories aside, um, I had an interesting conundrum uh, in that uh, my mother who suffers from uh, early onset Alzheimer's disease um, and she turns 72 next week. So it's been a 17-year run. So she has been um, living and suffering from that for 17 years. Um, obviously, writing about her uh, presented, a, mm. presented a problem that I didn't really think about because I just started writing, but I couldn't gain consent. That was... Mm. That was the inevitable, unavoidable truth of the matter. I couldn't ask Mum whether or not she approved or not about me writing about her decline and some things about her that were, were difficult. Mm. 
and to me talking about the nature of my relationship with her in ways that were difficult. Um, in the end, of course, I just did it and I showed it, of course, to my brother and my father. My father was really moved by it and he was adamant that I had the right to tell, tell the story in the way that I felt was truthful to me. Uh, and my brother was equally generous except saying he just felt it was really weird because he'd heard me tell all of these stories before at some point <laughs> along the line and he found that he was sort of reading it in, in my voice which was, which was so familiar to him. Uh, but, the, but the best feedback that he gave me uh, after reading it was that we actually needed more of my mother in there because uh, she became more present in the second half of the book when she was in decline and we didn't get so much of a picture of her when she was well. So that was something that I had to go back and try to put some more, stif some more stuff in about her to try to create some more context, not just about her, but also for the nature of my relationship with her. Can I, can I just add a point yeah. about permission there? Because I tried to get my brother's consent to write about him in this book, but he was in the middle of uh, drug-induced psychosis that had been running. He was an ice addict and had been running for many years. And at the point that I was writing it, it was uh, I, I couldn't get informed consent from him. He vaguely knew. I tried to speak to him during one of his better moments, but by the time it had gone to print and he'd started getting a little bit better and he asked mum, he's like, oh, what's Rick up to? And she said, he's writing a book, Dale. And he came running in from the other room and he's like, am I going to be in it? Like in an excited way. Mum's like, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you're going to be in it. Uh, <laughs> what's and all. And I, I, I don't think he's ever read it and I don't think he ever will. But I do, like at the, when it first came out, I did an interview with Stan Grant on television and he was living underneath the house at that time. And had not come Stan up Grant. Stan Grant was not living under the house. <laughs> no, no. <yeah. laughs> Um, you don't know that, actually. Um, <laughs> you haven't seen the claw marks on the wood. Uh, <laughs> um, and he'd come upstairs and he asked Mum what she was watching. And she's like, your brother's about to do an interview with Stan Grant. He's like, oh, good one. And then he left. And then the next morning, she, he'd gone and watched it. And I spoke in that interview particularly about his drug use and his addiction problems and his battles. And he told Mum that he was proud of me and that I'd described his life really well and that he was really happy with it. Oh. And I was like, oh, thank fuck. <laughs> Got lucky. Um, I would like to thank all of you for coming here today. I would like to, again, thank the organisers. I'd like to thank our guests um, for this fantastic conversation. Thank you. That's very kind. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Mitis Festival 2019. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronmitisfestival.com.